Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it's a privilege to have with us Chris Mena, who is a consultant in climate change, uh, emergency management, uh, resilience. Great to have you with us, Chris. Thank you much, Craig, for the invitation. Very happy to be here. You've got a great profile and you've done so many things in responding to emergencies and disaster prevention, crisis management. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you came to be doing what you're doing? Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, Chilean. I've uh, worked around the world in the in disaster management. So I was part of the World Bank team in Central Asia, Europe, the Caribbean. Uh, I also worked in the public sector as the deputy director of the National Emergency Office of Chile. Uh, I also worked in the in the in the gas industry, and uh, I have a bachelor's in political science and a master's in uh, risk resilience and disasters in UCL, London. And uh, the funny thing, it's, uh, to be really honest, <laughs> the way that I came up here is, uh, first, I, when I was when I left school, I wanted to be a priest. That led me to sort of a mystical path. Wow. <laughs> and uh, in some point, I realized that, that priesthood wasn't my thing. Uh, so I became a firefighter. Uh, in Chile, there are no paid uh, firefighters. We are all volunteers. So I've been a volunteer firefighter for almost 20 years. And uh, in some point I, I started realizing like, okay, how do I put together my career, political science uh, with this sort of uh, emergency response, et cetera, experience that I had as a firefighter. And in some magic way, <laughs> uh, these two things came up and I started to work on, on disaster risk management. Uh, so that's been for the last sort of 10 years. Amazing. What was your first experience in emergency response? My first call uh, as a firefighter, I think it was uh, probably was like a suicide attempt. Uh, that was sort of my first call. Uh, oh. I was also part of the user team of Chile. So I went also to the 2010 Haiti earthquake. So I was doing rescue also there. Mm. So there's been a lot of uh, on the ground experience and sort of mixing that with uh, with also sort of the, the political, the more so strategic uh, uh, side. It's also been an interesting uh, experience on how to connect with, uh, with the ground, but also knowing how things go on the on sort of the top layer also. People often come into emergency management through volunteering, like you said, like being in the fire service. Um, and they have different backgrounds, but different degrees, different disciplines that they've studied. How has your political degree helped you in your career? Well, I think basically first, when we understand that disasters are not natural, that again, it's to social, to political decisions that we make, uh, it provides you a more sort of a systemic view of, of the issue. Uh, so it's not just sort of responding or, or with all due respect to engineering, but sometimes it's, it's like, let's make this, this, uh, this thing stronger or let's uh, just uh, build a wall, etc. Mm. Uh, the politics, in a way, gives you a more or less sort of a broader sense of the phenomena, in a way, of a social phenomena. And also, it, particularly in my, my career, it has also given me the, the opportunity to have uh, better tools to communicate, to have to communicate effectively as, as, as politicians. <laughs> uh, they know how to sort of uh, uh, talk uh, and, and sort of have to share the message in, in an effective way and understanding that there's uh, uh, someone on the other side 
and you have to convey a message in a way. And and uh, that's for me has been sort of a, a key part of my career of sort of mm. being uh, an advocate, an activist on on reducing, reducing risk. I'm uh, I'm an active uh, member of the No Natural Disasters campaign. Uh, because um, and, then, and again, I think that that's part of the tools that that this kind of of social sciences background uh, provides. So you've consulted in your past with the World Bank and now the World Food Program, and these are these are really large organisations. Tell us about your experiences working with them. It's amazing. It's it's a challenging uh, scenario uh, because you face different cultural contexts, different uh, institutional contexts. Uh, that sort of the, the resolution you sometimes get into very specific projects, and sometimes you get into more like larger. Uh, and that's the challenging part of it, but also it's the beauty of it because because also you are uh, always being challenged, always sort of uh, it's not sort of a monotone work. It's something that actually uh, and for instance, I had in, for the World Bank, I had projects in Central Asia, uh, former Soviet Union countries, with one uh, context, uh, cultural context, and then you move to the Caribbean completely different context and then you go back to Greece and there's another context and that sort of uh, it's really interesting it's really it's really interesting uh, to sort of uh, understanding uh, how the how in a way how the, the the world works and to know that there's no one size fits all solution and that's, mm. that's really really uh, important I think that particularly as a consultant but I think that particularly on the on the humanitarian uh, uh, sphere, that there's sometimes the temptation of trying to find this one size fits all solutions and and the reality is that that's that's impossible like each right. project each community each country has their own challenges or their own uh, contexts and you have to work with them uh, so yeah so this is no one size fits fits all solution that's that's a great um understanding for emergency managers to have so from those organizations or as your role as the deputy national director for the chilean national emergency office can you talk us through some of the experiences that you've been involved in with disasters or emergencies mm. well first thing if we, if we go first to, to sort of the the, the preparedness phase of mitigation phase one thing that we realize in chile it's a very as you might know a very long country with a different geographical and cultural contexts which uh pushed us to to create uh regional platforms for reducing risk so instead of having just, just just like a national structure we wanted to go into more regional because we wanted to produce uh policy policies that actually uh, were contextualized on the geographical and the social context of each region so that's something that we really sort of uh, understood from the beginning that was sort of what i wanted to put in my in, in, in my stay there and on on response it's the same we have uh uh in chile we have 90 90 uh, active volcanoes uh, around 2,000 volcanoes uh, as total, but uh, at least 90 that, that are monitored and actively monitored. Uh, and so you have volcanoes in one side, on the other side you have tsunami risk, in between you have uh, wildfires, uh, floodings, uh, industrial events. So it, it's, uh, it's a very hazard-prone country. Uh, and that again, that really challenges uh, the, this, this, this concept of one size fits all because it's it's, it's mm. really impossible. Even though we, we have a multi-hazard approach, uh, 
uh, and we all, we usually talk about a multi-hazard approach, uh, but in, in this kind of scenarios, when you have several uh, very clear identified hazards, it's sometimes necessary to have a more specific hazard approach because uh, of, of, of the context. Anyway. So that, that sort of tension between having an overall view, but also considering they have specific hazards in, in the territory, it's, it's challenging in a way. Hmm. Did you have to deal with the volcanic eruption? Yes, uh, well, actually, because I was a deputy, I, I also uh, sometimes became the, the acting directors. And, and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I, every time that I, that I assumed as a director, something happened in a, in a volcano. <laughs> so that was sort of my, my it's only sort of the, the volcano cut. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, we, we had uh, several activations, uh, uh, three or four, nowadays I think Chile has like three or four volcanic uh, eruptions ongoing uh, in yellow or, or orange alerts. Hmm. Uh, and that's besides the other 90 volcanoes that are uh, monitored or that are actively uh, active. So it's a, it's a fun country to work on emergency management. <laughs> so what sort of different agencies did you work with and communicate with in that role? Well, in Chile, the, the model is that the National Emergency Office is the coordinator of, of a system. Of, mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, it's called uh, the Disaster Prevention and Response System, and uh, so its role it's just to coordinate. So it doesn't have any response capacities by itself. So uh, so we coordinate the response. So for instance, we coordinate the firefighters, uh, military for response, etc. Besides the, the the technical agencies that monitor hazards. So we have. For instance, the, if we come back to volcanoes, we have the, 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 the National Geographic Geological and Mining Service that monitors volcanoes and mining accidents. Uh, the, the, the Navy monitors tsunamis. And, mm. and so so, so the, the overall uh, work of, of the National Emergency Office is to coordinate this system of get all the information and start moving resources to, to where, where it's needed when we talk about response. So what did you so find were some of your bigger, bigger challenges in the roles in the that you've held so far? For me, it's communication. I think that's 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 the, the, the key key problem that I always uh, see. Uh, and uh, it's communication mixed with management, I would say, in a way, with management tools in a way. Why? Because um, uh, the ones that we've worked in disaster management, we probably know that sort of the wish list on how to reduce risk, et cetera, it's written probably 30, 40 years ago. Like we know sort of what we have to do to reduce risk, but somehow we're still seeing that disasters keep on going, uh, keep on happening. And my, and this is my theory, it's my personal view, is that I think that the problem is that most of the people that work in this, they, they, they come from more of a theoretical approach or more of sort of a, what mm -hmm. we have to do. But not too much experience on how to make things happen. This may may happen maybe with uh, management, uh, with influencing on politics. I think that's a, uh, I think that's something that uh, when I did my masters, my thesis was about policy change. And uh, and what I've seen is that <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, ways of changing policy, but that requires sort of a sensitivity mm. on how to influence on the agenda on policy, and that's where I think there's there's there's, there's the the big gap. 
that that we don't have what are what, what the theory calls the the policy entrepreneurs. There are people that actually can couple the solutions with the problems and put them in the policy stream. Hmm. And, and 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 that's something that that I think that that comes a lot with communication, with having proper communication to try to convene the message to policymakers, for instance, that, that they really don't care about the theory or about the, the, the overall view. They want numbers. They want uh, how many, how much dollars this will, will, will cost, how will be the return of that, of that investment, etc. So there's sort of another way of communicating that probably is not the, the regular way that we disaster managers communicate on, 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 our, on, our, on our environment. So I think that but for me, it's sort of what I've seen as, as, as a major challenge uh, uh, in my experience. Hmm. So there's multiple different uh, communication activities there. There's the strategic, there's the operational and managing, there's the policy conversations that need to happen. How can someone really prepare for that? What would you say people should train or experience to prepare themselves for those different types of communication? Hmm. So first, I think it's to have some some basic uh, effective communications tools, like knowing that there's someone else uh, on the other side when you talk, and that means that there's a lot of need for empathy, for understanding that people have biases. That yeah. comes from for from tactical approach, so from very operational work uh, up until policy, uh, when we know that uh, one of the things that I I sort of interested in in the last years is about uh, behavioral science. And sort of understanding mm -hmm. that uh, we as human beings uh, have certain biases, we have certain uh, ways that our brain works in a way that uh, makes us take certain decisions in a certain way. And again, learning that and, and being aware of that, uh, I mm -hmm. think it's, uh, it's something that, again, is transversal. If you talk to a politician or you talk to a firefighter on the ground, you still have to know that there's someone on the other side that has biases, that has a certain context, and you have to try to connect with that. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's so good. That's, that's you see the important. empathy. Empathy, I think it's it's key. Mm. Okay. I notice also that you're involved in climate change adaption. Tell us about mm. what you're doing in that area. Yes, well, I'm part of the Climate Leadership Corps. So it's part of a foundation that's led by Al Gore, who was the former vice president of the U.S., Hmm. And uh, my my role, uh, what I'm trying to push, is mainly on 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 raise the the importance of adaptation. So uh, for the last years, probably we've been talking a lot about of, about of mitigation, how to reduce the emissions. Yes. But sort of the adaptation side was sort of uh, not in the in the main uh, stream in a way. Now with the last COP, it seems that now we're realizing, okay, we have uh, extreme weather events that are fueled by the climate crisis, and it seems yeah. that it's necessary for us to adapt. So now it's sort of becoming an issue, but, uh, but what I'm trying to sort of push is, okay, let's work on adaptation, but let's not blame climate change for everything. And also uh, let's understand again that disasters are not natural. So even if we have extreme weather events, there's still things that we can do to reduce the vulnerability of our communities, to uh, uh, avoid creating new risk, uh, mm. planning better the, the, the territory, et cetera. Mm. So there are things that we can still do. So it's not sort of, okay, everything is lost uh, uh, and the, the apocalypse is coming. I think that there's a lot of that we can do. And, and that comes with actually understanding that, again, that there are no natural disasters and that we can have action on that.
that terminology there are no natural disasters can you dig a little bit deeper tell us some more about that yeah definitely I, I think it's not something that's just semantics i think that uh when we talk about sort of how we compose uh disaster risk mm -hmm. we talk about the three main elements so we talk about there's a hazard that interacts with a certain community that has certain vulnerability traits. And the community probably it's located in a place that it's exposed or not exposed to a certain hazard. So if we, we know that, we're, okay, we can't avoid, for instance, an earthquake. We can't avoid that the earth shakes. So we can't do too much with the hazard. But we can choose where to build. So we can choose exposure. We can choose if we put a community on a landslide prone area. But also, we know that the most vulnerable people are the ones that usually are more affected. For instance, yes. you have disabled people, uh, people with uh, hearing impairments. Mm -hmm. And we have tsunami sirens. Those people won't hear the tsunami siren. Mm -hmm. So if that, people die, if that person dies, it's because, of the, it's because of nature or it's because we didn't uh, consider that person Right. And we didn't produce a policy that in, that includes that person and makes them aware of the tsunami, for instance. Or there's some studies in Bangladesh that they say that for every man that dies in a in a flooding, four women die. So we talk about like why is that? It's, it's chance, or it's because there are gender gaps in the community that that and some cultural uh, biases or contexts that. That that take that this this figure happens that there's a four times chance of dying being a woman in Bangladesh instead of a man. So again, the nature it's 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 not the one to blame. I think that it's, it's mainly is us of of ownership of owning that uh, we can uh, do the things. Actually, to, today we will, uh, on the morning I was also talking about. So the same thing, and I'm, as, as someone asked about earthquakes, and I said, okay, let's take this as this example, just briefly. In 2010, we had two major earthquakes in the world. So we had 80, uh, 6.9 earthquake, which killed almost a quarter million people. And a month after, in Chile, we had an 8.4 earthquake, which killed roughly 500 people. So it's a completely different uh, magnitude of energy that was released. So it's a very small earthquake in Haiti compared to the to to Chile in in, in energy, but the deaths are completely uh, inversed in a way. Yes. So why did this happen? Because there are no building codes in Haiti. There's a paper very interesting about corruption and how corruption kills. Mm. So again, is this nature? No, it's social. It's it's wow. political. Uh, so again, uh, it's important that we challenge uh, this, this semantic of, mm. uh, of, of sort of blaming the nature, which is, of course, it's, it's easier. <laughs> it sort of uh, uh, it sort of uh, avoids uh, taking responsibility. But uh, I think that the invitation is to own this and to own that we can influence this. Mm. The removing the barriers, it's about equity, isn't it? The equity of not just opportunity, but the equity of outcome mm -hmm. for people. And so if you have a hazard, you have a location and you have a community, who ultimately gets to decide, no, you can't live there because that's the hazard that's going to hurt you, even though culturally, religiously, 
history-wise, tradition-wise, it says you should live there. Who gets to come in and say, no, you have to move? My approach is that no one. <laughs> I think that the role of, of, of governments, particularly of, 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 of uh, in, in that case, that probably is sort of the one that regulates sort of the is to provide information mm -hmm. as clear as possible. Uh, and to understand that there's uh, cultural contexts, uh, that, that there's, there's uh, cultural heritage. Uh, there's a, another beautiful example in, in Chile, in the 2010 earthquake, most of the people that died, died because of the tsunami that came after the, the, the earthquake with uh, wave heights uh, in some parts uh, higher than 30 meters. So a wow. massive tsunami. And uh, in, in the region where most of the people died, there was a small town that's called Tirua, and when where no one died, and, this, and 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 the reason why people died in the tsunami was mainly because the national emergency office had problems with uh, early warning, so they didn't alert the community about the tsunami. Mm -hmm. So there was like a sort of a case study, like what happened here, that this community saved, and they went to the traditional knowledge, and there was some methodology, uh, some some mythology, uh, of that uh, indigenous community that lived there. That they knew that there were two snakes, one in the sea and one in the ground, and they were brothers and they were fighting. So when they fight, you have to go to the upper land to save from the snake that comes from the sea. So right. without any technology, without any early warning system, etc., you have a community that knows what to do in case of a disaster. So should we just forbid them to build there because there's a hazardous area, or? we should give them information, make them take the, 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 their own decisions and try to provide us best uh, solutions to that. And of course, there are some things that of course we won't build. So one thing that I always say is, okay, uh, I won't build a hospital uh, on, on the front of a tsunami zone, zone. but probably there's some infrastructure that can be uh, put in, in, in more disaster prone areas with the assumption that we are having proper early warning, that we're having a proper uh, emergency plan, et cetera. So that, per that people, the people that are working there, et cetera, they can save themselves. So it's not just sort of letting let them uh, go by themselves. But but again, I think that it's, it's also respecting the, the traditional knowledge, uh, the cultural background, the history, as you say. And, uh, and that's, that's uh, because I, I don't think it's so linear, sort of the, the, the the approach of there's a hazardous area you have to leave i think mm. it's a much more complex uh process uh that sometimes can lead to people actually wanted to stay there and i've seen it a lot of times that people sort of build back every now and then on the same place etc and it's because they have the livelihoods there etc so yes uh, it's, it's just very complex just, yes yeah well chris this has been um really interesting um, and I just want you to know that I was making notes and I hope our students were making notes. I've got a whole page of notes myself. Chris, if someone wanted to do the work that you do, particularly consulting in, in climate change adaption, um, looking at disaster prevention and response, you know, they're aspiring to do this as part of their career, then what would you say are some key preparations that they would need to do to be highly effective in this career? Mm. Well, I think... First, on, on the more sort of hard skills, I think that's having uh, learning uh, at least two or three languages. That's a sort of uh, yeah. something that, that 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 probably, if you want to work in an international environment, you need to have at least at least two very fluent languages and probably 
a third one or fourth that can sort of uh, help you to <laughs> go around in some cases. Um, also getting a master's, <laughs> probably that, 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 that's sort of a basic thing that, uh, you, that you won't have that, uh, that, that job if you don't have at least a master's. And the soft skills, I think that's really important to uh, have network, networking skills of actually mm -hmm. don't being afraid to uh, contact people, to share your, uh, your abilities, uh, building your network. Uh, that, that's crucial because, well, of course, sometimes the, 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 the jobs are published, but most of the times, the jobs come from networks that you know someone that needs a certain project, etc. Nowadays, I'm working on a, on a mining project, and, uh, and 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 the way that they that they reached me was because one alumni from my masters uh, knew that I was in Chile and wrote me and was okay. Let's see, and, and that was it. So again, it's 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 don't being afraid of 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 building networks of of. Correct. Of sharing your experience and but finally yeah. have a, a perfect LinkedIn profile. I think that, that that's something that nowadays all people will look at your LinkedIn profile. So that's something that has to be really really polished and and really sort of brand yourself. That's good. I'm just making a note to myself to add that to our curriculum about <laughs> LinkedIn profile preparation. That's a very very good point. Yeah. When I did my master's in UCL, uh, I took a specific course about how to sort of make the LinkedIn and in that time mm. they were saying that LinkedIn was going to be sort of the recruitment tool. So yep. again, it's important that that, that your students have uh, uh, a proper way of, of having that profile really perfect. Chris, this has been really good. And I must say that after doing this for a year and a half, interviewing emergency managers and wonderful <laughs> people like you make a difference. I don't think anyone else has said about being multilingual and having more than one language. So that's, mm. that's a really good new piece of learning and advice <laughs> to hear. So Chris, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you being with us. Uh, I know you're really busy. So thank you for sharing your experiences and your learnings. Well, thank you much, Craig. And anytime, happy to join you. Thank you. And as Chris said, everybody, if you're watching this with you, one of our students, I hope that you've got your notebook and you've got your pen and you've been making notes. If not, hit rewind, replay and watch again to make some notes. And also, if you are not one of our students, but you're an emergency manager, like Chris said, and maybe you don't have your bachelor degree or your master's degree, and that really can open doors up for you. If you don't have that, do reach out to us, uard.ac.nz or uard.org. We will recognize all the experience, the training, the recognition of prior learning is a big part of what we what we do. It was why we were founded, and it's um, how we connect with emergency managers to make sure that your career, your experience, experiences is all recognized. If you're like most emergency managers, you have that big binder of training and certifications that you've done in your career, but maybe it doesn't link directly to an academic qualification. We can do that for you. So do reach out to us. We'd love to partner with you to increase your career opportunities. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone else. We'll see you on the next one.